All of it is supported by Missouri, makers of handcrafted jewelry that's made to last. Looking for the perfect Mother's Day present? Missouri has you covered. Get free shipping on all orders in the U.S. and Canada, plus a two-year warranty. Head to Missouri.com slash all of it or use code all of it for 10% off your first order. That's M-E-J-U-R-I dot com slash all of it. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. There are certain bands that inspire kids to get into music. And in the case of our next guest, specifically young girls who want to rock. Musician, singer, and songwriter Kathy Valentine rose to fame as the bass player of the Go-Go's, a band that made history in the early 1980s. The Go-Go's were the first multi-platinum selling all-female band to play their own instruments and write all their own songs on a number one album with their debut, Beauty and the Beat. Kathy wrote or co-wrote some of the band's biggest hits, including Vacation and Head Over Heels. And she shares the heady highs and rock bottom lows that come with the life of being a rock star in her new book, All I Ever Wanted, a Rock and Roll Memoir. Valentine writes candidly about her life before the Go-Go's, growing up with a free-spirited British expat single mom, on her desire to create family, her deep love of music, and substances that nearly cost her the former, and of the nearly three decades of her life creating punk, new wave, and pop music. I'm very happy to welcome Kathy Valentine. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Allison. Thanks for having me. And uh, I want to offer condolences to WNYC and the city for the loss of Richard Hake. Um, very really, kind of you. Really sad about this. Very kind of you. Thank you. I know everybody really appreciates that. You know, in your book, you write in the introduction about explaining to your teenage daughter while you're writing a memoir. And you write, it was difficult to do and something that was hard to articulate. You write, and yet I was driven. I had to write it, moved by a force very different from one behind all the songs and musics written and played throughout my career. So what was that force that drove you to write this book? Well, it was partly, I think, that I felt like I had a story to tell. And I, I just think women's stories are so important, especially when it's given the unconventional childhood that I had and so many obstacles, so many, um, so much loss and confusion, and then finding music, the the narrative of a woman who is infatuated with rock and roll and pursues it with with the determination and passion to actually get to the top and then lose herself again in that success and on that um, roller coaster. It was just, a, I thought it was a, a compelling story. I'd read enough memoirs to think, I think I could do this. And I think I have something readable to write. Was there a message that you wanted to, to relay to the world, to somebody, to a young girl who's thinking about music? Not so much music, but that you can, how important it is to stay true to, it sounds so cliche, but how, just how important profoundly important it is to stay true to what it is that is you and you know you can you can try all number of ways to escape or deny or push down the feelings that might be from your past or your or your childhood for me it was abandonment and and betrayal on a on a level that and yet you can still be loved still have success and eventually i think it would just be resilience and survival and mm-hmm. Facing, facing yourself, facing the truth, and being vulnerable. I think that was a big, big message was that I spent so much of my life as a survival mechanism. It's okay. Everything's okay. I'm going to be fine. That's how I had to be to, 
to have a to survive. And when you get older, that's not really what makes you survive. Being vulnerable is is key. And you're, as you describe it, for our listeners, you were very candid about some of the difficulty and trauma you had growing up in Texas and Austin. You write, music had calibrated the imbalances of my life for as long as I could remember. How was this true? What, what did it help you put in perspective for you and help you develop? Well, even before I was a musician, music had just given me... Oops, I'm sorry. Given me hope um, for Jesus. Given me hope for um, the fact that there was a future outside of my immediate surroundings. I was ostracized. I was outcast, and my mom and I were very different from mm-hmm. the circumstances I was in. And when I, I can't say what it was like to see a David Bowie or a Mark Boland from T Rex or these rock and roll figures were bigger than life, and they were like superheroes to me, and they showed me that there was cir- circumstances outside of my own that were very painful, and maybe there was a place for outcasts and outliers in the world at large, so that was important, but finding music gave me a, a drive, a direction, a dream, and it really pulled me off of a, a path that was quite destructive. You write very, you know, you write about, there's a moment that I think kind of crystallizes sort of the, the, the free-spirited nature of your mom. You write in the book a point where your mom is 36 and dating a 24-year-old, and you're about 15 and dating a 35-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> and oddly enough, what, what I, I really wanted to get on the page what it felt like, and you read that, and it sounds so awful, but the, the weird thing was it was also one of the closest times I'd felt to my mom. Mm-hmm. Because we were like these two girlfriends with their crazy boyfriends. And it was literally like Thelma and Louise with Butch Cassidy and, and the Sundance Kid. It was just in this crazy, debauched 70s backdrop. And uh, yet I remember it with with uh, fondness. I mean, it's just it wasn't until I was a mom myself that I started thinking, whoa, <laughs> whoa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I want to point that out. That in, you know, in the beginning of the book, you, you speak, you speak very, you write about very lovingly about your mom, although the, the circumstances I, were unusual compared to other folks around you. Yes, uh, I think it really, writing the, the memoir gave me a way to process um, my childhood, my mom, the parenting, the, the parenting I didn't get. And I started seeing a whole picture, and it really opened my heart to my mom in a wonderful way. I, I realized that big pillars of parenting, I mean, huge ones, are guidance and boundaries and parenting, basically. But also support and love are very, you know, crucial to the well-being. And I, despite not having any guidance, I felt loved. I, I always felt loved. When you're a kid, you just don't really know anything differently than what you have. And then you see what other your friends might have, and you know that you're not fitting into the norm. But you, you're not going to you're not going to uh, do away with the, the the one setting that you have. So I didn't want to villainize her. It wasn't like that. It was a very mm-hmm. different era. I think people have a hard time really understanding what the 70s were like coming out of the free love, you know, idealism of the 60s. We still had all the freeness, but less ideal, you know, a lot of bad stuff was happening. And to be a teenager in that era, 
it was it was quite an experience and my mom you know the good side is is that i felt like i had to take care of myself from a very young age and it has defined me for the rest of my life you know for, for to, to this day even in the best ways even in the best ways you know when 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 i forgive and when i let go of grudges and when i move on it's because i need to take care of myself and that's the best mm-hmm. way to do it my so guess is that in, in oh please go ahead i see the gifts no, I was just going to say I see the gifts so so clearly. My guest is Kathy Valentine. The name of her memoir is All I Ever Wanted, a rock and roll memoir. You write very candidly and directly about having to have an abortion at age 12. That was two years before Roe versus Wade. When you look back on that time, now that you are a parent, what do you think? And as you were writing I think- it, what did you feel? I I felt like it was very difficult to write that. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, if I had written this book in the 80s, it would have been a different thing. But abortion is a, a extremely hot button, polarizing issue, and a lot is going away to take that constitutional right away from women. And as much, as uncomfortable I as I was about revealing the situation, I just feel it's really important that people put human stories and human faces as to why a woman. Even a 12-year-old child, maybe especially a 12-year-old child, should not have to have her life, entire life determined by a mistake or uh, exploitation or being in a situation where she was coerced. Um, And I'm not saying I was coerced that particular time, but when you're 12 years old, you're not making good decisions and you're not being parented. You're making even worse decisions. So why should the rest of my life be, you know, taking away that self-determination when other citizens have that. And I just thought it was really important to talk about it, as uncomfortable as it was. When did you And yes, pick- and, and I felt like it was very difficult. For, yeah. for my daughter, that was the worst thing huh. to read, to know about. Interesting. Um, when was the first time you picked up an instrument? I was 14. Well, I had I was drawn to music. I joined the school orchestra as soon as I could. So I was very drawn to music. But when I picked up a guitar, there was something about the guitar that made me feel like this is the one. This is the one mm-hmm. I'm going to stick with. For some reason, as big of a rock and roll fan as I was, and that was I was I was a you know diehard rock and roll fan. It never occurred to me to plug to get an electric guitar, plug it in an amplifier, and start a band. And it's so interesting. I'm very lucky. My mom's English, and she took me to England right at that point where I was playing guitar, and I saw my first female rock star on television, and it was Susie Quattro. And, you know, Susie Quattro begat many, many rock stars that are women, you know, not only myself, Joan Jett, tons Mm -hmm. of them in England where she was a huge star. So um, it really blew the, the, the whole deal wide open it seemed like every path was very clear and all I wanted was to find girls my age girls like me to do it with I thought I can't be the only one I thought I was I can't be the only one that wants to do this so from that point on it was my number one driving mission well then you met Belinda and Jane and Charlotte and Gina Uh, and actually you were filling in for their their bassist who was out and you ended up 
keeping getting the gig. Um, what appealed to you? Why did you want to be part of that group, the Go Go's? Well, I had been, you know, I had been, I'd moved to LA to make it in the business. Uh, the, I'd been in four or five bands, London and Austin. I moved to LA, started a band there, and my vision of what making it meant was pretty nebulous. I, I just, I think it meant like not having to work a regular job. I think that was <laughs> as far as I took it. It was like, uh, this is how I want to be able to you know, get by in the world. So um, when I met them and and they wanted somebody to fill in, it was when I, st- I, I knew who the Go-Go's were. They, they were popular in Los Angeles and females in bands always took notice of each other. But when I was learning the songs, I had four days to learn the bass, which was not my main instrument, and to learn 20 songs set to play eight sold-out shows at the famous Whiskey A Go-Go. And I had never had such a a long uh, sustained focus in my life and I was so determined to do the job perfectly and as I was learning these songs I just thought this band has what it takes I just knew when you are just driven to get somewhere you know when you see an opportunity it's just that's part of the drive is being able to sort out the you know the noise and what's the real thing and I just thought this band could make it I want to stay I want to stay and when I rehearsed with them the chemistry was I mean, you could almost see it happen. So it was, yeah, I mean, one of the things I like to notice in the book is just the, the, the connections between what feels like destiny and what feels like random chance and how they just mm-hmm. kind of crisscross together and which is it? Who knows, you know, but it really felt like destiny. When Beauty and the Beat came out, what did you think was going to happen with this debut record and then what actually happened? Well, we thought we would build our career over the course of several albums. Our our record label was run by Miles Copeland, who was quite a visionary, and he also managed The Police, which was one of the biggest bands in the world. And he had a, a method that he had built their success. So we just thought we were going to follow in those footsteps. Uh, we weren't real happy with the way the record sounded. We thought it didn't sound rock and roll enough and that it was too clean. Uh, we figured out over the next eight months as it started to sell millions of copies that maybe what we thought wasn't that relevant. And uh, But literally, for me, every step felt like such a success. To me, just making an album was was a form to this dream that I hadn't quite known how to to shape for myself. And going on tour with what felt like my sisters and my best friends felt like felt like, you know, the epitome of success, you know, and it's one thing to sell out a club in your hometown, but we could pull into any city across the country and play maybe the dumpiest club in the in the town, but it was packed, it was sold out, and we'd go back there one month later when we'd be playing a bigger place, and it was packed and sold out, so there was so much happening in the immediate world, it wasn't like any of us, or especially me, I was not tracking the, the record that much. So as it kept climbing back then, I don't know if it's still the same because I don't track records now, but they'd say you had a bullet, which meant you were mm-hmm. going up or your bullet was going down. And I think one of the most exciting moments was when we were on tour, we were playing a big arena in Atlanta and Sting came in our dressing room and said, congratulations, you guys have passed our record. And that was kind of like, wow, okay, something is happening here. 
My guest is Kathy Valentine. The name of her mem- memoir is All I Ever Wanted, a rock and roll memoir about her life before, during, after, during again with the Go-Go's. One of the things I loved about the book was you, you really kind of get into some of the business aspect of being in a band. And this is one passage I want to read. With a couple million records sold and being on the road for eight months straight, a significant payday was long overdue. At our accounting firm, I sat on the edge of my chair in the office waiting for my check to be issued. Looking at it, I swooned. I made over $300,000, almost 800000 in present value. It was more money than I knew what to do with. Of course, the accountants had ideas for that. My head reeled. I'd buy a car, definitely get a cool place to live. Almost out the door, I turned back and suddenly curious, hey, what did everyone else get? Surely it couldn't be a secret. Everyone had busted bleep to make the record sell. The numbers came. Charlotte, with most of the songwriting and the biggest hit, got a huge check. Next came Jane, just under Charlotte's. My mount came next. Our lead singer, the star with the charisma and voice, made less than me. And Gina, the hardworking drummer who had turned the band into contenders, made the least. I had to let that swish around in the wash cycle of my brain for a while. This didn't bode well for the band. The first real money had been paid, and there were some awfully big gaps. You guys all got along great, but there was there was tension in the band. There were Jane at one point wanted to be sing, and you guys at the time couldn't really see that as a reality. If you could go back and sort of redo something professionally that you think would have helped the health of the band, what would it be? I think um, when... I mean, and I tried to be very clear that there's not a manual to this. There's not a right or wrong way. The, the, a songwriter who has written a big hit is perfectly within their rights to say, this is my song and I should get the money for it. Perfectly within their rights. It's also perfectly within the rights for a band member that didn't write a song to say, you wouldn't, you know, if I wasn't slogging around the country for the last, you know, X amount of time, getting up in the morning doing the interviews doing the Mm -hmm. shows what good it so i there's not i wanted to be really clear that i wasn't saying it should be this or it should be that but when you have a band that is so based on chemistry like we were when it's like when it wouldn't be the same if it was anyone else it i i think going back it would have been a good idea to try to equalize it some way and if it's if it's just put in the time and effort to find a way there's always a compromise where maybe everyone's not as happy as they could be but you just make that effort because it shows that you value and you recognize the contributions of everybody so i think that's really important for me at that time keeping that band had become my number one drive making it had been that been it before then by that time it was just about keeping it in my view one in a million got to that point and anything that threatened the band really scared me because this band represented Mm -hmm. how I could take care of myself, how I could survive. By that time I'm taking care of my mom too. So I'm feeling compelled, which is not, it's not the best way to be in a fun band (laughs) is to be, you know, have your motivation be fear and desperation. And that discrepancy in earnings scared me. It scared me not because I thought I was angry or mad. I was, totally fine with what I'd made and I knew I would be contributing a lot more but it scared me the thought that our sisterhood our partnership our private wonderful exclusive club that only had five people had this splintering thing in it which seemed to like have no solution 
There's and, something oh, yeah, really... going back, I would... Yeah. Go, go ahead. ahead. No, you go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say... Go... <laughs> Sorry. Um, going back, I just wish that we that there was more compassion, uh, more maturity. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you be mature when you're 22, 23 years old, and you haven't had to graduate from college and go out into the world and, and be responsible? You know, you kind of just stay in this stunted place. I, I don't want to speak for everyone else, but I had the maturity of, of a teenager, before I let you go, I want to let people know that there's a soundtrack. You created a soundtrack. It makes complete sense to go with your memoir. If you listen to the audiobook, you can hear the songs. And it's also, I think, on Spotify. Why did you want to make a soundtrack to go with your memoir? I really felt like that for, for many decades now, songwriting has been my best friend and my best therapy. And that's just how I process what's happening internally, externally whether it's divorce or, or betrayal or just it's just there for me. And I felt like some of the themes I had touched on were so deep and so profound and such a such a catharsis that I really wanted to explore it musically. And some of this, the chapters felt like songs to me. And I worked with a wonderful composer in New York City, Michael Rouse, and uh, we he helped me create this this wonderful body of music which is ironic because the title kind of plays on all I wanted all I ever wanted was to be in a band and feel like I was a part of a family and something and and then I go off and do have this wonderful experience not being in a band so <laughs> that's kind of an irony of the book but I had a great time making this music and um I think I it was fun it was just really fun there was no conventions of songwriting I had to adhere to yet I could utilize all the things I love about songwriting, hooks and catchy melodies and guitar riffage and bass grooves. So it was re- very freeing as, a, as an artist. And I like that message, too, as a 61-year-old woman, to, to just put that out there that, you know, you can go make the, the coolest, most interesting thing you've ever done. And it doesn't stop in your 20s or 30s or 40s. It just keeps going if you're open and keep challenging yourself because it really feels exhilarating to have done this book and to step out and to be me instead of the girl, the cool chick and the cool band. The name of the book is All I Ever Wanted, a rock and roll memoir. Kathy Valentine, it has been a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. All of it is supported by Majuri, makers of handcrafted, ethically sourced jewelry for every day that's made to last. Looking for the perfect Mother's Day present? Majuri has taken the guesswork out of gifting, offering everything from dainty 14K solid gold pieces to pearls, diamonds, gemstones, and more. Make it personal with an engraving, or if you can't decide, check out their curated gift guide. Let them take care of the rest, gift wrapping included. Get free shipping on all orders in the U.S. and Canada, plus easy returns and a two-year warranty. Head to Missouri.com slash all of it or use code all of it for 10% off your first order. That's M-E-J-U-R-I dot com slash all of it.